This week, American Tire reaches agreement in principle with bondholders on restructuring plan. Ascent Group convertible note holders seek preliminary injunction to block Monotronics Exchange. And Toys receives approval of Delaware and Taj disclosure statements. More on all this and, as always, updates from Puerto Rico. Welcome to the Week in Reorg. Hello, and welcome to the Reorg Research Weekly Podcast, where we bring you the latest top developments in the news of distressed debt and bankruptcies. I'm Stephen Opper, reporting from Reorg's offices in New York City. This week, Angelo Thalassinos, Reorg's Deputy Managing Editor of U.S. Credit and Senior Legal Analyst, gives us an overview of the momentum cram-down interest rate trial, which was presided over by Judge Robert Drain. It's Sunday, September 9th. American Tire Distributors kicked off the shortened holiday week as the company skipped the coupon payment due Tuesday on its 10 and a quarter senior subordinated notes, thereby entering a 30-day grace period. That same day, the company publicly announced that it, quote, reached an agreement in principle with holders of more than 70% of its bonds on the terms of a recapitalization transaction that will reduce the company's debt by up to $1.1 billion. Reorg learned details of the proposed transaction from cleansing materials provided by ATD to creditors. ATD's draft term sheet, which would see subordinated note holders exchange their bonds for 95% of common equity, lays out a structure for a parallel solicitation of an out-of-court exchange offer and a pre-packaged plan of reorganization. Existing equity would retain a 5% stake plus warrants. As for the company's bank debt, the term sheet states that the term loan will remain outstanding with a maturity extension, additional terms to be agreed upon by the note holders and the company. Reorg later learned that the following Tuesday's skipped interest payment, ATD asked term lenders to get restricted to begin negotiations over the company's proposed restructuring. Including in the cleansing materials, ATD also projected the company will generate almost $280 million of adjusted EBITDA in 2019. The company expects year-over-year adjusted EBITDA to fall in the first half of 2019, but resume growth in the third quarter. On Thursday, holders of approximately 45% of the convertible notes issued by Monotronics parent, Ascent Capital Group, filed a motion seeking to enjoin the company and board from completing the currently outstanding exchange and tender offer announced last week. According to the motion, in less than a month, on October 3rd, and in, quote, blatant disregard of the laws barring fraudulent transfers and in breach of their fiduciary duties, Ascent and its board of directors intend to, quote, render the company insolvent, inadequately capitalized, and unable to pay its debts when they come due. The plaintiffs also said that through the impending note exchange, Ascent intends to funnel value to Monotronics creditors, whom the plaintiffs assert have no legal claim to the company's cash. According to the complaint, the $100 million of cash is almost all of the company's cash and barely exceeds its current liabilities. Monotronics faces an October 2019 springing maturity on both its senior secured revolver and $1.1 billion senior secured term loan due 2022 in the event that any of the Monotronics 9 and 1 8 unsecured notes are outstanding at that time. The company has acknowledged that it may have to file its 10K for fiscal year 2018 with a going concern qualification. With terms of any potential deals still in the works, Reorg published an exchange model this week showing potential outcomes at various participation levels and clearing prices under the current transaction terms, so please contact your salesperson for a copy. In the Toys bankruptcy, Judge Phillips approved the disclosure statements for both Delaware and Taj debtors, as well as the proposed bidding procedures for the sale of the Taj debtors' almost 85% equity interest in the Asia Joint Venture with Fung Retailing Limited. 
Judge Phillips, however, refused on jurisdictional grounds to invalidate a right of first refusal held by Toy's Asian JV partner Fung. Judge Phillips added that he, quote, won't take kindly to the current $760 million minimum bid for the debtor's JV interest being lowered through the arbitration proceedings that Fung recently commenced in Hong Kong. The Delaware and Jeffrey amended plan disclosure statement was filed on Wednesday and disclosed for the first time projected recoveries for the B2, B3, and B4 term loan claims. The deadline to vote on the second amended plan was pushed from October 3rd to October 5th. On Thursday evening, the Toys R Us debtors filed a notice in connection with their France sale motion containing summaries of the material terms of the four bids received for the France business under French law sale process. As described in the debtor's motion, the process had a bid deadline of September 3rd, and then the French court will select the ultimate purchaser at a hearing in late September. On Monday, the Puerto Rico Aqueduct and Sewer Authority and Puerto Rico Fiscal Agency and Financial Advisory Authority filed cleansing materials disclosing an August 13th proposal by certain PRASA bondholders and an August 31st counterproposal by AFAF and PRASA related to a possible PRASA restructuring. The proposal by the bondholder group represented by Jones Day and Greenhill and the counterproposal by PRASA and AFAF differ on terms including the treatment of senior revenue bonds. The EMA filing discloses that neither proposal has been accepted and that AFAF and PRASA remain committed to consensual negotiations with all stakeholders. Also in Puerto Rico, the UCC on Thursday filed an omnibus reply in support of its motion to enforce the automatic stay against certain GDB actions taken in connection with the GDB's Title VI case in proposed restructuring. The reply also responds to the objections filed earlier by the PROMESA Oversight Board and by the GDB and AFAF. In the reply, the UCC complains that the objectors support the GDB restructuring, quote, regardless of the mandates of PROMESA and the bankruptcy code or considerations of transparency, fairness, or fiduciary duties. Later on Thursday, the UCC launched an adversary proceeding challenging the GDB restructuring efforts and seeking a judgment that the GDB Restructuring Act is, quote, invalid and unenforceable. At the initial GDB Title VI hearing on Friday, Judge Laura Taylor Swain indicated that she will approve a modified version of the procedures motion filed by the GDB and AFAF in connection with the application seeking approval of the GDB qualifying modification subject to certain changes in the proposed order. And finally, Puerto Rico's economy contracted 0.3% in July on a year-over-year basis, but edged up sequentially, according to the Economic Development Bank's Economic Activity Index for the first month of fiscal 2019. The Purchasing Managers Index for Puerto Rico's manufacturing sector, meanwhile, remained at or above the expansion threshold for a ninth consecutive month in July. Other top red stories of the week were, one, a mattress firm bankruptcy filing would seek to restructure leases would not be triggered by sushi outcome of arrangement. Number two, Transocean announces agreement to acquire Ocean Rig. Number three, Diebold files an amended credit agreement. And now we turn it over to Jim Holloway in Houston for a preview of what's to come in the week ahead. Well, thanks, Stephen, and greetings, listeners, in your appropriate time zone. We got through the first week of Wall Street's autumn, so let's see what the first full week has in store. And the short answer is, it's a lot. Okay, Monday, September 10th, to kick it off, we have Q1 earnings from home builder Havnanian. 
They're based in New Jersey, but they have big operations in the Houston area, by the way, along with PetSmart, which is, of course, engaged in a court fight over its transfer of 20% of equity in its Chewy online UIT to its PE parent and another 16.5% to an unrestricted subsidiary. Tuesday, September 11th, the DS and DIP financing objection deadlines for Pacific Drilling. Um, the other day, I was actually reading an interview with Transocean CEO, Mr. Jeremy Thigpen, who was in a trade publication. He was actually pretty optimistic on the outlook for the rig contractor space, particularly in the North Sea, uh, where you need a harsh environment rig. But he was also uh, pretty positive on deep water and constructive on the Gulf of Mexico. And also today, there will be an earnings call for PetSmart. Wednesday, September 12th, a busy day, highlighted by an omnibus hearing in Claire's stores. This will be the first hearing, I should note, since Oak Tree filed its objection to the debtor's plan late Thursday. And at the center of Oak Tree's objection is valuation, with them seeing TEV at ne- nearly $2 billion, compared to $1.4 billion by the debtors. There's also earnings from tailored brands and a big voting deadline in Puerto Rico related to the Government Development Bank's application seeking approval of its qualifying motion. This modification offers claim holders about 55 cents for each dollar of claims. There are also various deadlines for Gibson, which, by the way, has just released its lineup for 2019. And interestingly enough... None of this year's models, be it Les Paul, SG, or Firebird, include the robot tuners manufactured by Tronicle, which is, of course, a member of the UCC and the Guitar Makers Chapter 11 cases. Thursday, September 13th, an omnibus hearing in Gibson. This is related to matters related to its supplemental solicitation procedures motion an omnibus hearing in Puerto Rico, and also an abeyance expiration in the Commonwealth Cafina dispute. The final DS hearing for iHeart and the early exchange deadline for Cent Capital's offer to acquire Monotronic's 4% convertible senior notes. An ad hoc group of note holders, which owns more than 65% of the issue, have said they will not tender, making a Cent's offer, in their words, impossible. And on Friday, September 14th, a few more deadlines in Puerto Rico including the deadline to complete the solicitation of the aforementioned qualifying motion in the GDB matter, and at midnight. It's the expiration of the 30-day grace period for PetroQuest, which on August 15th declined to make the coupon payment on its 10% second lien notes. Since then, however, specifically on August 31st, the company entered into a new multi-draw term loan facility, the lenders for which are McKay and Shields and Core, who sources say are among the larger holders of the second lien notes. So there you have it, and back to you, Stephen. Thanks, Jim. As always, we'll be on the lookout for all of that and more. This week, Teresa Lee sits down with Angelo Thalassinos, Reorg's Deputy Managing Editor of U.S. Credit and Senior Legal Analyst, to discuss the implications of a momentive cram-down interest rate trial, which is on remand from the Second Circuit. Passing it over to you, Teresa. I'm Teresa Lee, and I'm here with Angelo Thalassinos, Reorg's Deputy Managing Editor of U.S. Credit and a Senior Legal Analyst. Angela has been closely following the, mom- the momentum remand cram-down trial proceeding before Judge Robert Drain for the last several weeks. As a bit of background for our listeners, the dispute here revolves around how to set the appropriate interest rate on the cram-down notes issued by the company to its first lien and one and a half lien note holders. The momentum dispute dates back to 2014, when Judge Drain first used a formula approach, which resulted in a 3.88 fixed rate 
on replacement first lien notes and a 4.69 fixed rate on replacement 1.5 lien notes. Now on remand from the Second Circuit, Judge Drain must first decide whether an efficient market existed and, if so, apply a market rate of interest to the replacement notes. However, if no such efficient market existed, Judge Drain's formula approach applied in 2014 and the fixed interest rates set at that time would hold. Closing arguments in the trial occurred on Tuesday, September 4th, and Judge Drain has not provided any clear indication of the timing for for his ruling, aside from saying that a decision would be issued in due course. Thanks for having me on, Teresa. This cram-down trial was very much a throwback to a contentious Chapter 11 case in 2014 and presented the unusual situation, Judge Drain's words, whereby a court of appeals sent a matter back to the bankruptcy court for further adjudication. Judge Drain, during the trial, said that the unique circumstance was akin to putting on a wet bathing suit. Pretty sure that comment signaled the end of summer 2018. So, Angela, can you tell us a little bit about what's at stake here for the note holders? Well, put simply, the crammed down note holders have the potential upside of a greater interest rate on the first lien and one and a half lien replacement paper and catch up payments, reflecting any higher rate since the October 24th, 2014 plan effective date and issuance of those notes. Briefly setting aside the gating question of whether an efficient market existed, the parties have all agreed that the cram down interest rates, if set at a market rate, instead of through the formula approach, would have been higher than the rate set in October 2014. Assuming an efficient market is found to have existed, let's briefly set up the apparent range of potential possibilities. As we said before, the replacement first lien notes were issued at a 3.88 fixed rate. The company says that those notes should have been set at a floating rate of LIBOR plus 413 with a 1% LIBOR floor or a 5.6% fixed rate. The first lien notes trustee says that the notes should have been set at a 6.47 to 6.99 fixed rate. Now, turning to the replacement one half lien notes, those were issued at 4.69 fixed rate. The company says that those notes should have been set at a floating rate of LIBOR plus 613 with a 1% LIBOR floor or a 6.72 fixed rate. The one and a half lien notes trustee says that the notes should have been set at a 7.75 to 8.25 fixed rate. Can we explore the fixed rate versus floating rate aspects here? That was actually one of the most interesting aspects of the trial and closing arguments. The high yield cram down notes were set at fixed rates, but the potential efficient market corollary, which the court and parties were debating, was the committed exit term loan the company had lined up in the event that those notes were to be cashed out. That exit term loan would have been at a floating rate of of LIBOR plus 400, again with a 1% LIBOR floor, 50 basis points of OID, and a flex of 125 basis points. Of course, the exit term loan never came to be. During the trial, the company, again assuming a finding of an efficient market, pushed for a floating rate to be set on the cram down notes. The replacement notes trustees, on the other hand, pushed for fixed rates and noted that if Judge Drain were to now set a floating rate four years after the cram down notes were issued at fixed rates, the court would be creating an issue for appeal. During closing arguments, though, Judge Drain commented in multiple discussions with counsel that a floating rate on the replacement notes could be, quote, fair or fairer and truer to life, end quote, adding that it could be truer to an efficient market in contrast to a fixed rate. Now, irrespective of whether a floating rate or a fixed rate is set, 
again, assuming efficient market is found, there would still need, need to be a resolution of the mechanics on the catch-up payments. And at the moment, the parties uh, disagree on those mechanics. Okay, so let's go back to the gating question. Before the court gets to the issue of a market rate, Judge, Judge Drain actually has to find that an efficient market existed. How did, the, how did the Second Circuit frame this question, and how did the parties present their positions on an efficient market? So the Second Circuit provided the following guidance with respect to an efficient market, saying, quote, Courts have held that markets for financing are efficient where, for example, they offer a loan with a term, size, and collateral comparable to the forced loan contemplated under the, crown, under the cram down plan." End quote. The replacement notes trustees focused on the term, size, and collateral factors in arguing that an efficient market did exist at the time, adding that the committed exit financing was also at arm's length and a further indication of efficiency along with the competition for the exit financing itself. In contrast, the company argued that an efficient market defined as one where prices fully reflect all available information did not exist, focusing instead on that there was no other reference instrument in the market without call protection, which the replacement notes do not have. The company further argued that any competition with respect to the exit financing was, quote, quite limited, end quote, and that at arm's length negotiations alone are not sufficient for finding an efficient market. During the trial and closing arguments, Judge Drain, at least in part, appeared focused on the exit term loan as a potential corollary, the sophistication of the parties involved, and the arm's, arm's length nature of and marketing process related to the financing. The judge also said that all of the experts agreed that the efficient market definition adopted by economists, the one that would define the efficient market to the extent that market prices are fully reflected with all available information, was with respect to an optimal market, but that, quote, is also not true to real life, end quote, considering that if such definition were to be used, there would never be an efficient market. Judge Drain also focused the parties in the actual replacement paper and said that he was not aware of any purpose important to the company's reorganization for the lack of call protection on the replacement notes. So where does that leave the parties and everyone waiting for this decision? So closing arguments presented a good overview of the myriad factors Judge Drain is considering, both with respect to the presence of an efficient market and assuming one is found to have existed, the setting of market rates. On the question of whether an efficient market existed, Judge Drain appears to be grappling with the proper definition and whether the definition would include consideration of an arm's length and competitive process. As for the proper market rate, if an efficient market is found to have existed, the judge appears to be debating the floating rate versus fixed rate inquiry and the quantum of risk factors to consider in setting a rate. Now, I know that there are a lot of eyes on this trial. What sort of broader implications could a decision could a decision have? Yes, that's right. So the standard applied to answering the question of whether an efficient market existed in the context of setting a cram down rate would have the broadest implications in Chapter 11 cases across the country. While this could play out in a number of ways, application of the standard in future cases would likely be focused on case-specific considerations, including whether the debt to be crammed down is substantially covered or not. That said, there remains a likelihood of an appeal and potentially cross-appeals from any decision to be rendered by Judge Drain, and thus, clarity on the broader implications of the Chapter 11 crammed down interest rate standard may very well require further appellate decisions. 
Will large Chapter 11 debtors line up an exit facility and go through a financing process as part of any cram-down dispute, whether the fight is threatened or real moving forward? That'll really depend on the standard set and what an appeals court or two may have to say. Stay tuned. This will be an important decision and opinion for the restructuring world. Great. Thank you, Angela, for joining us today. And of course, Reorg will be keeping a close eye out for Judge Strain's ruling. Thanks to all of our listeners and tune in next time. That's all for this week. As a reminder, you can access all Reorg Research podcasts on our media page, or if you're not a subscriber, you can access them on iTunes and SoundCloud. I'm Stephen Opper, and this has been The Week in Reorg.